we come today to, to the cross, and we come to this moment in the story of Mark, we come to this moment in the whole story of salvation, which really is the climax of the entire story. And it's a sobering thing to think that, that at this moment, at this juncture in this text, you come to that point that everything before has been pointing to, not just in Mark, but all of salvation history, all of God's entire rescue plan for creation, for humanity, comes to its pinnacle, rises to its massive crescendo at this moment on the cross. This particular point in time, 3 p.m., one Friday afternoon, stands as the, the zenith of God's redemptive work. And uh, we come here today, the Sunday uh, before Easter week, the Sunday leading into the week that's coming and then leading us towards Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday. We come to stand here and to, to gaze upon the cross. And that's what we want to do this morning is just to look at this cross and, and consider and ponder and wonder at what was done for us there. I think especially those of us that have been around church and faith and, and, and this story for a long time, we get numb to its meaning. It just washes over us and we don't think it through deeply. And so today... I'm praying that God will somehow enable us to recapture some of the wonder of just what happened, just what He accomplished for us uh, on the cross through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And this moment, this Friday afternoon, was really the point that the whole story of Mark has been moving towards. This, this journey that we've been on in the book of Mark, I don't know whether you remember, but we, we started at the week after Easter last year. So uh, it's been a long time. It's been a marathon. And some of you are like, yeah, it feels like longer than that. It feels like five years. But uh, we've been on this journey for, for a whole year. We've been weaving our way through the Gospel of Mark, working our way up to the cross. And, and that's good because you can't, you're not just going to understand the cross by jumping in at Mark 16. You're not going to grasp it just by, by jumping in at this text Amy read and expecting to, to, to grapple with the immensity of what happened there. The cross doesn't exist in a vacuum. The cross is the climax to a story that has gone on before it and leading up to it. And this is a story that Mark in particular has told us. And because we've followed this story, it's easier for us to see now what it's leading towards. And so I want to step back with you today and just look at the cross in the context of Mark's whole gospel. As we just about wrap the series up next week, we're, we're, we're the final Sunday of our whole series in Mark with, with the resurrection of Jesus, but we're just about there. And this is a good moment for us to step back and ask ourselves, how does this, this event, the crucifixion of Jesus, the death of Jesus, how does this work in the whole story that Mark has been telling us? And as you read Mark, in order to understand this book, you need to understand that it's a gospel of conflict. From the very beginning, it's not like Jesus just came into the world unchallenged and carried on his ministry and died for the sins of the world. From the very beginning, Mark has been telling us a story that revolves around conflict and controversy, controversy and opposition. There has been resistance, there has been antagonism to the plan of God. And Mark has shown us how this has come against the person of Jesus. In the first instance, Mark shows us that Jesus has encountered along the way various forms of spiritual opposition. If you cast your mind right back to when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water, there was that glorious moment, Father, Son, Spirit, all there, and then the first thing that happens, do you remember the first thing after that, is the Spirit of God leads Jesus away, 
into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan for 40 days. This is really the first event at the, at the very beginning of his ministry. He undergoes this huge temptation. And we quickly learn that this figure, the, the Satan, the accuser, is the enemy of all that God is seeking to do through this person, Jesus. That Satan stands as the great antagonist in the story, seeking to corrupt the work of God. And Jesus experiences this temptation. Mark doesn't really tell us much about what happened in, in the wilderness. There are other Gospels do, but Jesus comes back seemingly victorious. He marches into Nazareth and announces, the time has come, the kingdom's here, I've got the good news. And we get the strong impression that what Satan tried to do to Jesus in the wilderness hasn't been successful. But right through the story, Satan and these spiritual forces of evil and darkness are coming against the work of God, coming against the person of Jesus. Most often, this crops up in the form of these demons, these evil spirits, who seek to, to corrupt the bodies and lives of other people and challenge the authority of Jesus. And especially through the first few chapters of Mark, you see this opposition to the ministry of Jesus. You see people with unclean and evil spirits coming to Jesus, coming before Jesus. And even though they ultimately have to acknowledge his authority, their, their effort is to try and speak against him. Their effort is to try and tear down this work that Jesus is doing, this work of healing, this work of renewing, this work of restoring. These forces, these spirits are the minions of Satan sent to try and corrupt and contaminate God's work. And it's really no wonder that Satan throws everything that he's got at Jesus throughout his entire ministry. There's a massive concentration of demonic activity in Palestine from AD 30 to AD 33. That's why I don't think you can look at the story of Jesus and assume that that's what we can expect all the time in every place. Because when you've got the Son of God walking around on earth, of course Satan is going to throw absolutely everything he's got at that man in that place at that time. So you see these forces of opposition, these spiritual forces coming against Jesus, and alongside this you have human opposition. It's not far into Mark's gospel where you realize that Jesus is not the most popular guy in town. Even though he's healing, even though he's redeeming, even though he's restoring, this kingdom that he is bringing in, this good news that he is announcing is not good news for everybody. And in particular, it's not really good news for Israel's leaders who quickly see that Jesus is going to be a threat to the established order of Judaism. He's a threat to the traditions of Judaism because what Jesus has been doing is offering forgiveness of sins apart from the temple, apart from the sacrificial system, apart from the law, apart from all of these institutions that was so central to the system of Judaism. And Jesus, it's, it's, it's interesting that Jesus even goes out into the wilderness to be baptized, somewhere that is the complete contrast of the city of Jerusalem where God is thought to truly be at work and truly be present. Jesus picks an entirely different location and spends most of his ministry up north in Galilee. And Israel's leaders don't really like this because what they would have preferred is a Messiah that came to fit in with the establishment to fit in with the traditions, to proclaim the law, the Torah, without altering it and adjusting it and even rejecting parts of it as Jesus did. But he doesn't do that. He comes, he heals on the Sabbath. He restores people. He changes parts of the law. He repudiates some of the oral tradition of the Pharisees. Time and time again, Jesus is a threat to the establishment of Israel. And so, from one angle, Mark's gospel 
is this whole sequence of Israel's leaders stepping forward one after the other, after the other, after the other, challenging and confronting and questioning Jesus. The scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of them have a go. It's like this little parade, one after another. They're coming, they've got a question for Jesus. They'll try and trap him. They'll try and force him into a corner. They'll try and ask him a question that there is no answer to. They'll try and do whatever they can to make him look silly or to force him to clarify what he really thinks about the law or put black and white terms around, are you with us or are you against us? So Jesus experiences this immense human opposition right through the Gospel of Mark, and we've seen instances of that. So you have the spiritual opposition, and you have this human opposition, and then thirdly, there is this political opposition to the person of Jesus. And this is a bit more subtle in Mark. It's more understated, and, and you can understand that when you think that Mark himself, when he writes his Gospel, he's writing later in the first century, under political pressure from Rome, and it probably wasn't quite so easy to make these overt statements about the Roman Empire if he wanted this gospel to really get circulation. But right from the very beginning, we've looked a couple of times at this opening to Mark's gospel where Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news. You remember that? The beginning of the euangelion, the gospel, the good news. And from the beginning, Mark sets Jesus and Caesar on a collision course. The kingdom of God and the empire of Rome are at odds with each other. Every time Jesus proclaims this kingdom that he's talking about, it is the counterpoint to the kingdom of Rome. For people that were in Palestine in the first century, they only knew of one kingdom. It was the kingdom of Rome. This was the empire. It was Rome that was in charge. But Jesus, time and time again, paints the picture of a different kingdom, a kingdom that doesn't come through military might and coercion and dominance and at the end of a sword. As Caesar's peace came, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, peace on earth, but peace through bloodshed. And Jesus announces a different kingdom. Do you remember that passage when he rides a donkey into Passover, when he rides a donkey into Jerusalem, this triumphant entry story? And we talked about how that whole story is so full of irony. Here is the Roman garrison, the Roman military lining the streets of Jerusalem, and here is Jesus riding in not on a war chariot, not on a horse of war, but on a donkey. The whole thing is satire. The whole thing is mockery. The whole thing is pointing at this Roman idea of power and might and honor and saying, you guys have got it completely the wrong way around. The kingdom and the true king is about service, about lowliness. Remember the passage from Zechariah, see your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. That's the essence of the kingdom, and it's the counterpart to the kingdom of Rome. And so here are these three forms of evil, in a sense. This is how Mark understands sin and evil, in these, with these three faces of spiritual evil, Satan and his minions, of human evil, the religious leaders and Israel's leaders, and political evil, the kingdom of Rome. And as Jesus, as the story of Jesus works its way to this climax and ends up on this cross on Friday afternoon, you see all three of these forces at work. You see, there, there, did you hear the reference in the text Amy read to darkness covering the land? as Jesus was, was hanging on the cross. That's not just an accident. That's not just a freak of nature. This is heavy symbolism. 
Darkness symbolizes evil. It symbolizes oppression. It symbolizes the work of the one who opposes God. And here is this covering of darkness over the land through the whole time that Jesus is crucified. He was crucified at 9 a.m. on the cross, but he dies at 3 p.m. around then. And there is this covering of darkness. What does that tell you? There is this oppression of evil. It's as if evil is reigning. It's as if Satan is having his way. Behind all the physical, behind simply a man hanging on a cross, there is the work of the one who is God's antagonist, God's great opponent, hanging Jesus on that cross. And then you have the, 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 the human opposition to Jesus. You have the chief priests. You have Israel's representatives. They're the one egging the crowd on. They're the one lobbying Pilate. They're the one who first arrests Jesus, who try him right through the night, who drag him to Pilate, who get this charge of treason stuck to Jesus, and finally lobby the crowd for Jesus' execution in place of Barabbas. It is Israel's leaders constantly. Not all Jews. This is not anti-Semitism. We have to keep saying that, but this is these national leaders of Israel at this time. that You read the text, it's unmistakably clear. These are the guys driving this agenda. They want to squash this threat to Judaism. They want to squash this threat to Israel's traditions and laws and practices. And you find, too, that you have this, that the political forces of evil converging on Jesus as well. Ultimately, it's the empire that crucifies him. It is the empire of Rome that hangs Jesus on the cross. He is executed by the government on charges of treason. That's the political angle from which to look at it. And so you finally get to the cross, and you see how Mark wants us to see this event. In the first instance, Mark wants us to realize that the cross is the convergence of evil upon Jesus. Before it means anything for you and I, and before it means anything good at all, it is the convergence and the concentration of pure evil upon the person and the work of Jesus. This is the great, dramatic, final attempt on the part of God's opponents to tear down and squash and crush His saving, redeeming plan that has been rolling forward since creation. This is the great effort to crush an enemy of Satan, to crush an enemy of Israel, to crush an enemy of Rome, to tear down God's work. And what you see at 3 p.m. that Friday is nothing less than the full fury of evil unleashed upon the person of Jesus, the man Jesus, and the work of God through that man. It is the full fury, the full force, and it is an exhibition of pure evil. It is a sickening display of injustice. It is a brutal demonstration of opposition and antagonism and resistance to what God has been doing. That's how Mark wants us to see it in the first instance. You and I want to run straight to the good news and see the cross as the thing that brings us forgiveness of sins. But Mark says first... See it as the climax of this story of opposition that has been building and rolling forward from the beginning of the gospel. And then you see, even in the text itself, 
these, these little hints that that might not be the last word. You notice that when Jesus dies, a couple of things happen. One is that the curtain of the temple is torn in two. The, the, the curtain of the Jewish temple separating the most holy place from the rest of the temple. And we usually think about that as, as God's presence being unleashed and finally it's not restricted. God's presence isn't restricted to this, this one area. It's for all people. And, and that's true. But in another way, I think this is a repudiation of this entire system of temple and law and sacrifice that Jesus has been opposed to from the beginning. Again, not anti-Semitism, but it is a rejection of the temple as the means of finding forgiveness and favor with God. Do you remember that story when Jesus went into the temple and he overturned tables and he stopped the sacrifice of animals for a short period of time? And we talked about how that was a symbolic judgment and denouncement of the temple as the place where God resided, as the system in which God used. Jesus is saying this is on its way out. All of this is coming to an end. And of course, in AD 70, it physically would as the temple fell. But it's the same thing. When the temple curtain is torn, it's the same idea as when Jesus turned over tables, as when he drove out the, the money changes, as when he stopped the, the, the sacrifices momentarily. This is God the Father now saying that system is bankrupt. That system is impotent. That system cannot save. And did you notice too that as Jesus dies, this Roman centurion, Mark must have loved writing this, that Roman centurion who stands and looks at Jesus and makes this extraordinary comment, surely this man was the Son of God. Now, we've got to be fair to him. He's probably not a fully... Uh, Trinitarian theologian at this point who's articulating the finer points of Father, Son, Spirit. I don't think he understood all of that. That took centuries for people to get their heads around and we're still getting our heads around it today. But remember, this is, this is a Roman centurion. This is Caesar's man on the spot who was considered in, in, in these times to be the son of a god. It was Caesar. This is clear from the inscriptions on coins and other archaeological evidence that it was the Divus Augustus who was the son of a god, the one who had come to bring peace on earth. And here is a Roman representative saying, surely this man was the son of God. What does that mean about this other man sitting in his palace in Rome? It wasn't him. He's not the one. This is the man who has come to bring peace on earth, who has come to bring the real good news. So you get these hints that perhaps the, the human opposition to Jesus, perhaps the, the political opposition to Jesus wasn't the last word on the cross. But you find what's interesting in the, in the crucifixion story is that there's no hint about the spiritual powers of darkness not having won. There's no hint in the crucifixion story, and we can try our best to find one, there's no hint that that darkness was suddenly lifted. It's not until you get to Mark 16 and these women go to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning and Mark makes a point of telling us very early on the first day of the week just after sunrise, just after the sun comes up. I think Mark's using this imagery of darkness and, and, and sunlight to show us something about what's going on. Darkness covers the earth 
as Jesus dies. And on the third day, these women visit the tomb just as the sun's coming up. And if that's too subtle for you, the whole thing blows wide open in the next verse anyway as they discover the body's gone, the tomb is empty, and it becomes pretty clear that Satan and his forces have not had the final word. And so then the cross becomes this paradox that on the one hand, Mark wants it to see, wants us to see it as the concentration of evil upon the person of Jesus. But then there is this other sense in which as evil is unleashed upon Jesus on the cross, God himself somehow steps into that event to overcome the very forces of evil who are opposing Jesus. That as the full fury of spiritual and human and political opposition is targeted and concentrated at the person of Jesus, God steps into the eye of that storm. The Father enters into that hideous display of evil and uses it to turn the forces and the powers of evil on their head and bring what was defeat into victory. And by the time we get to Mark 16 and the end of the story, what we suddenly realize is that this plan to, to, to destroy Jesus from one angle was the agenda and the mastermind of God's opponents. It was the plan of the religious leaders. It was the strategy of Satan. It was the agenda of Rome. And yet we get to the end of the story and what we realize is that transcending all of that, this was the providential plan of God. It's as if the curtain is suddenly torn back and we realize we thought these players were moving the story forward and all of a sudden we realize that at another level, God has been at work all along. And that in the very event, the, the exact event designed to crush this threat to the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of Israel, and the kingdom of Rome, God works in that event to bring victory and to bring a new day and to bring a new creation, and to bring new order and forgiveness and peace. That what was supposed to be the crushing of a threat becomes this glorious moment of renewal and restoration and victory. And you have to allow the cross to be both. It's hard to understand. It's hard to get your mind around. I don't pretend... To, to, to fully understand it. But somehow the cross is both. It is this opposition to the person of Jesus, and yet it's precisely in that event that it becomes this decisive victory of God over those very forces. And we find that these players, these, these antagonists, have been pawns in God's hand all along and have been used to work His redemptive agenda. There's a quote from one commentator who says, The cross is both a hideous demonstration of evil and the glorious moment of love. It is both. And to do justice to Mark, you have to let it be both. And you have to live with that tension and you have to live with that paradox. This is both opposition and victory. It is the defeat and yet in that defeat, it is this decisive victory of God. And what that victory of God means for Mark, unequivocally, is the launching of what Jesus had talked about all along, the kingdom, the kingdom of God. This has been Jesus' theme song from the very beginning, the very first words out of his mouth in Nazareth. The time has come, the kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. This has been his motif right through the gospel. 
Every healing, every saying, every miracle, every exorcism, every controversy, it's all been moving the kingdom forward. It's all been about quietly, sometimes secretly, advancing the kingdom of God. And the conflict of Mark's gospel, the conflict between Jesus and these spiritual, human, and, polit and political forces, it's the conflict of the kingdom. It's the conflict of God's opponents to the work of the kingdom, that he is bringing forth the work of healing, the work of renewing, the work of forgiving, the work of redeeming, the work of recreating. And the kingdom, I know it's a big concept and hard to get your head around. Well, I find the easiest way to think about the kingdom of God is the way Jesus taught us to pray about it. When he said to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's all the kingdom is, is the doing of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And the enacting of God's reign and his rule and his authority right here on earth, just as it is perfectly enacted in heaven. And the best way to think about the kingdom is in relationship. What the, what the kingdom does, what the cross does ultimately for us, is that it makes available to us a whole new set of relationships. It brings into play a whole new set of relationships that we are now able to have with God, self, others, and the world. That's the work of the cross. It brings us into, it offers us at least the opportunity to enjoy new relationship with God. And this is central to what we usually understand the cross as being, is that it restores our own communion, our own connection with the God who created us. It takes down that dividing wall of sin. It takes down the barrier of enmity between us and God, and it enables us to be reconciled with Him. The cross invites you and I to step into communion, connection, fellowship with the God who has created us and who has redeemed us on the cross. That relationship is central to what Jesus accomplished. But it's more than that. And so often, Christians stop there. And that's all we want the cross to be, or that's all that we allow the cross to be, simply the forgiveness of my personal sins and your personal sins. But the cross is a lot more than that. The cross also makes possible a new relationship with ourselves. That might sound a bit weird, but a new relationship that we can have with self because the cross makes people healthy and whole human beings. It doesn't simply deal with your soul or your spirit. It also deals with your mind, your emotions, the whole self. The cross is holistic. And what Jesus defeated on the cross was not just the abstract power of evil, the power of sin, the power of Satan out there somewhere. What Jesus defeated was the power of anger, anxiety, fear. He defeated the power of our past to hang over us and enslave us. He defeated the power of the future to, to, to cause great anxiety and keep us uh, in fear and to keep us from boldly stepping out into the plans that God has for us. Jesus defeated depression. He defeated anxiety. He defeated rage. He defeated insecurity. He defeated low self-image. These are the forces, practically, tangibly, concretely, that the cross actually dealt with, so that it's, it's not simply a case that the cross makes us Christians. It makes us humans. The cross restores humanity to us and enables us to, to discover who we truly are, 
And through the cross, our minds can be renewed. We can understand ourselves as being completely forgiven, that our standing before God is purely on the basis of His grace. Nothing you can do will make God love you any more today. Nothing you can do will make God love you any less today. We are free. We are forgiven. We are restored. And the cross moves into those spheres, those dark crevices in our mind where we still don't believe that. And it enables us not just to be saved by grace, but to live by grace. To actually live out of that wellspring of being redeemed, being forgiven. We sometimes assume that when people become Christians and accept what Christ did on the cross, they're zapped and their entire mind is reprogrammed. It's not the case. It takes a lifetime for that to happen. But this is the power of the cross as it works its way into conversations, as it works its way into counseling rooms, as it works its way into your own times with God, those connecting times that I know you're having. As it works its way into those areas, it enables us to live out of that grace, to understand ourselves as completely secure, and for that to be a foundation for abundant life. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.